Okay, well, thank you for having me. Hopefully, second half of you will filter in here in just a minute. So um, I want to talk about something that is very common. So all of you um, who see children know that atopic dermatitis is a common disease. It, can, it is actually seen in almost one-fifth of all school-age children. One in five infants develop atopic dermatitis, and 20% of Americans in general have atopic dermatitis. So one out of five of your patients, whether they be children um, or adults, is likely to have some form of atopic dermatitis. In adults, sometimes people will, will quote a, a lower percentage, but some of those um, numbers may be misleading because as people age, their atopic dermatitis may transform into things like pommel plantar uh, dermatitis or other forms of uh, scalp dermatitis that aren't actually accounted for in these studies. About 90% of patients have early onset of their disease, so within the first uh, Five, by five years of age, but many in infancy itself. So this is a disease of babies, children, and adults, but I will be concentrating today on atopic dermatitis in children. I know you had a talk this morning from Steve Wolverton uh, talking about some of the systemic therapies for atopic dermatitis, and I'm not going to touch upon much of that today, but I'd be happy to take questions at the end if you have specific questions regarding to children. Uh, regarding children. Now, there was a recent study, which was kind of interesting, uh, um, in JAMA Dermatology just last month, that uh, called into question the thing that we tell a lot of kids and their parents, that, oh, perhaps they'll outgrow it. So I think that um, what this study did was looked at a very large number of patients, over 7,000 patients with mild to moderate atopic dermatitis, and found that over a long follow-up period that 50% uh, had persistence of their atopic dermatitis into their second decade of life. So when parents ask me, will they outgrow it, I say maybe, maybe, you know, the, the stats are usually 50 to 60% of children outgrow their eczema. But I may, have to, I may have to put a little asterisk to that because um, there may be just more persistence of atopic disease as our environment changes and, and um, our triggers change. So um, I wanted to talk just briefly about the many faces of eczema. So I know if you see a lot of kids or adults with eczema, you know that uh, eczema can look many different ways. And I just have a few clinical photos to show you, uh, talking a little bit about what it can look like in infancy versus childhood eczema. Uh, the patterns of eczema can be different. You can have diffuse eczematous dermatitis, or you can have very localized numular dermatitis. Some kids tend to be um, rubbers and scratchers where their skin gets very lichenified. Others have uh, thin plaques, but they get eroded and easily super infected. So this is just a picture of a little baby with, with atopic dermatitis, and I think it's interesting to note that you know, it isn't simply the, the flexural distribution that sometimes people associate with atopic dermatitis. In babies, it's often all over. So it can be their whole back, their whole chest, uh, very diffuse, diffusely involved. And in fact, um, one of the things we frequently see in babies with atopic dermatitis is significant facial involvement. And some of these kids have very thick crusts. Some of them are super infected with staph. Um, others may have some pityosporum, which is, um, which is involved. But it can be really disturbing to, to families because it's often unresponsive to just mild topical steroids. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. This is a, a slightly older patient, still has um, some more diffuse dermatitis, uh, has significant facial involvement. As kids get older into childhood age, often the flexures are more involved, and this is just an example of a um, axilla with significant lichenification. 
nanocubital fossa uh, with, with lacinificanation and some excoriation. But I put this one in here because this is not atopic dermatitis, and many of you may know that this is actually subarate dermatitis. So one of the things to keep in mind when you're looking at kids who you think that may have eczema in the infantile period is that subarate dermatitis can involve all parts of the body. It can be diffuse, it can be head to toe, and that's what I think of when I see a baby who's very young. So within the first three months of age, they may not actually be manifesting atopic disease at all, at all but it may look very dermatitic. Seborrheic dermatitis in the, in the newborn period often likes the flexures. So in a patient who has fair skin, it looks like this, where it's red and macerated. And in patients who have darker skin tones, it often looks very hypopigmented. This is a baby who has seborrheic dermatitis, not atopic dermatitis. And just to show you that it does favor somewhat the flexural areas. And so we always talk about how in babies, atopic dermatitis doesn't affect the diaper area very often because it's such a well-hydrated area that it's often spared. Well, in subarachic dermatitis, it'll be the opposite. Other things that, that do the same thing are psoriasis. So psoriasis in the newborn period is in the differential diagnosis of patients who you're evaluating for possible atopic dermatitis. And in those patients, they also can have a, a lot of diaper area involvement. Going back to atopic dermatitis, this is just a, a picture of a numular plaque. So numular atopic dermatitis can be very resistant to therapy and oftentimes require higher potency steroids. It often gets super infected. Uh, it, I feel like many times we see patients in referral because our pediatric colleagues have um, not used strong enough medication because some of these numular plaques are very resistant to therapy. And in fact, um, our... our uh, Immunomodulators like pomicrolimus and, and tacrolimus are often not good for this type of eczema. This is another patient who has numular but slightly different morphology, so not as like kinified but certainly a numular. Some of these patients will also have coexisting flexural involvement, but many of them don't. So they don't at all have, even into childhood, they don't at all have the typical distribution of atopic, what you think of atopic dermatitis. They just get these numular plaques often treated as ringworm um, or, or tinea infections, and so sometimes come to us because of uh, misdiagnosis because we don't recognize that, that uh, this is also a form of atopic dermatitis. This can happen in any skin type, but uh, many times African-Americans or darker skin types are more likely to have a papular morphology to their atopic dermatitis. It's not, over, uh, it's not as paritic as uh, de uh, defined plaques of atopic dermatitis, but often widespread. So although uh, this is a very resistant to therapy and it would require strong potent topical steroids to actually make all the small little papules go away, I try to focus on the areas that are symptomatic and realize that this is just a background skin type in many patients, especially dark skin patients with atopic dermatitis. So I'm gonna talk mainly about treatment for the majority of the time. But I think when you think about treatment, you have to think about what is atopic dermatitis. And it's not simply a defective skin barrier, although we know increasingly that that's important. Uh, the mutations in the filaggrin uh, protein have uh, been increasingly recognized as being important in atopic dermatitis. Patients have a genetic predisposition, often have, have family histories of uh, patients' families having asthma, allergies, eczema and then environmental or allergic triggers. And those vary. Uh, in, in small children, so in children in the first two to three years of life, food allergy can play a role. 
Uh, as kids get older, they may outgrow some of those food allergies. And food allergy in older or childhood eczema is very unlikely to be playing a role in their atopic dermatitis. As you get older, the role of environmental allergens increases, and those become increasingly important to identify to see if there, is, if there are environmental allergens or triggers that you can, uh, that, that you can modify. And lastly, but very importantly, it's a, it's a disease of immune dysregulation. So um, addressing all these things are important in a patient who has atopic derm. And when they come to dermatology, you know, oftentimes we get the, the family that has said, I have tried everything. I have tried Benadryl. I have tried hydrocortisone. I've tried triamcinolone. But really, it takes doing everything together, dealing with the skin, skin barrier, dealing with the environmental triggers, and, and dealing with the inflammation. And we'll kind of go through each of those areas. So um, the management is, is uh, multifactorial, uh, as, as uh, we just talked about. Educating them is important. So I like to try to set realistic expectations for patients. So if, if children have very severe atopic dermatitis and the only thing that will clear them is clobetazole or, or uh, flucinonide, it's not appropriate therapy for a two-year-old, for example. So educating them on what our goal is. My goal in patients is to make them comfortable so they are not itchy. Um, if they're school age, so they can concentrate in, in, in school. If um, they're of any age, so that they can sleep at night and the household is not um, completely affected by this dermatitis. But I don't think that the goal is to completely clear children's plaques. Um, and the reason for that is because there's a risk-benefit ratio. And you have to think about that with your therapy. Uh, Dry skin care, so the barrier effect again is important, and I'll talk a little bit uh, in more detail about what our bathing and, and soap recommendations are, as well as uh, the barrier creams that we recommend. Inflammation, so I, I'll say this a couple times probably, redness is inflammation. Uh, patients can be diffusely, uh, diffusely dry, they don't need steroids everywhere, they, they really only need their anti-inflammatories where their skin is inflamed. And then we have to deal with sleep issues, and there's multiple studies talking about why that's so important for not only families, but not only patients, but their families as well. Infection is important because um, it, it, there have been theories that if you don't treat the infection in patients with atopic dermatitis, it's like a vicious cycle. They, their atopic dermatitis will not get better no matter what therapies um, you do. Not to mention that there are patients who get significantly ill with their atopic dermatitis, getting, getting actual areas of cellulitis. And then, of course, managing the triggers. So what about bathing suggestions? Uh, it used to be that uh, you know, people were told not to bathe because it dries out their skin. And I think that there is um, perhaps something to that in our older patients who are geriatric patients that do not want to take a bath. They cannot take a bath. They are not physically um, able to, and they may take a short shower or, or um, bathe very briefly. But in kids, where taking a 10 to 15 minute bath is not at all unusual, and in fact, often enjoyable and fun and part of the day, uh, that is a good thing. And we do not want, um, we don't want kids to not take a bath. One of the reasons is because of what we just talked about with infection. So you do want to wash off the bacteria that are on, on the skin during the day. So I think that's important. The other thing is that if you do what, what some people refer to as a soak and seal, it can actually hydrate the skin uh, in a very effective way. So there's, um, there's two types of bathing. You can take a short bath. Or, or a hot shower, and those will dry out your skin if you put nothing on them. But if you bathe soaking, 
patting dry and putting on your moisturizer, you can actually help your skin out quite a bit. And, and during flares, I actually recommend kids bathe twice a day. What do they use for soaps? Well, you want something that's bland, uh, fragrance-free, obviously. You want a, a neutral or acidic pH soap, and you want to use uh, either bars or liquid cleansers, depending on what the type is. So there are, this is not obviously an exhaustive list, but it's kind of nice to look at the difference between uh, a mild, what we you know, often tell patients is a mild cleanser like Dove or Cetaphil being at a, at a neutral pH and one that we know that dries out many children uh, or adults, including things like Ivory or Zest or, or Lever 2000. So they are very basic and very drying to the skin. So we often uh, try to steer people to the soap that will be gentlest. Some people don't like things that don't lather. Cetaphil doesn't lather. The Cetaphil cleanser doesn't lather. Some people don't mind, but that may be a barrier for others. Um, you have to kind of talk to them. Some people don't like bar soaps in children for whatever reason. They just want something that is a liquid cleanser. So there are liquid options. There are bar options. You just have to kind of talk to your patients and see what will work for them. So emollients come in many types, ointments, creams, and lotions. Ointment is, is obviously a, a pure, greasy formulation with Vaseline being the, the, the most common. The thought is that Vaseline or an ointment-based moisturizer is more occlusive than a cream and that is more occlusive than a lotion. So you can think of it as cream being grease with some water and lotions being water with some grease. There are time, there are the place and time for, for um, all of these. I typically, for younger children and for children who don't mind the greasy feel, so you know, a three-year-old doesn't usually mind if their skin is greasy, using a petroleum-based or ointment is my first choice for moisturizer. As children get older and they're going to school and they don't want to be greasy or it's staining their clothes, that grease can kind of stain the clothes, you can use um, the newer moisturizers which try to replace the ceramides and flagrant byproducts and, that are missing in, in children who have atopic dermatitis. And you can use those cream-based moisturizers either once a day in the morning with an ointment at night or you can do BID with cream-based moisturizers. I rarely use lotions. Um, the time that I use lotions would, so I tell, actually I tell families all the time, nothing in a pump bottle. Uh, because I don't want them to use something formulated with so much water that it will simply evaporate. I use lotions one time, and that's in the hot, humid summer. So depending on where you're from, that may be more or less more, more or less part of the year. But I think that um, itching is is induced by heat in many kids, and so if you're using a Vaseline moisturizer and it's 95 degrees and humid, you may actually make their eczema worse. So you do have to be a little careful about um, adjusting their moisturizers accordingly. So this just summarizes a little bit of that, that, uh, what I just said, lotions in the summer and ointments and creams um, at other times in the year. So the barrier in, in our skin is often likened to, um, to a brick and mortar model where the bricks are the skin cells or squamous cells and the mortar is the lipid. And then when you're missing that lipid layer or that lipid layer gets washed off with a, with a highly uh, basic soap, you need to replace it. And the barrier, the barrier repair creams that we have are some of the over-the-counter that I just mentioned, but there are also others that are prescription. There are uh, medications like Mimix or Atopiclair, um, Episerum is another one. There, there are, um, these are medical devices, so they have to go through a very, uh, a not a very rigorous process to get approved. They are not like drugs, so even though they're prescriptions, they're, um, the evidence behind them 
is soft. And I, I, I encourage you before you give patients something that is 10 or 15 or even 50 times more expensive than some of the over-the-counters that you look at the evidence and see if it's really uh, worth, that, worth that prescription. For some patients, they like the feel of certain moisturizers that are prescription, and that's fine. You just have to, you just have to kind of look at the pluses and minuses for each patient. This is a patient uh, who's, I mean, everybody's seen this patient who is a baby who has perioral uh, eczematous plaques. Is this eczema or not? Um, I think in patients who have sensitive skin, you see this all the time. And I like to call, call it drool dermatitis. So I don't really call this atopic dermatitis. It's the wet, dry phenomena that happens because of all the drool and the saliva around the mouth, the milk, the other food that gets there. So in, in isolation, uh, I wouldn't call this child atopic, but I would use similar um, treatments. So just to hit upon a question that we get a lot, can my child swim with atopic dermatitis? So your rare patient will actually tell you that if they went swimming and it got worse. You need to follow that up with a few questions. Uh, you know, did you apply emollient afterwards? Did you rinse off the, the chlorine? But in most kids with atopic dermatitis, it actually can be helpful because that chlorine is like a bleach bath, which we'll talk about in a, in a couple minutes. And that may help, again, with the infection part of the trigger for atopic dermatitis. And so patients who have numular atopic dermatitis or who have impetigenized or frequently impetigenized uh, dermatitis, I actually have them swim um, at least several times a week if they can to help with their, with their disease. What about sunscreen? So we're getting to the time of the year where everyone's going to ask about sunscreens when, when they come in. And I think that uh, there are lots of choices of sunscreen. This is, again, not an exhaustive list. Uh, basic recommendations for children with atopic dermatitis and, um, and, and, and sunscreens is that they use a physical blocker. I actually think that that's what you should do for all children, uh, regardless of whether they have atopic dermatitis. But definitely, they're gentler than the chemical sunscreens. So anything that has zinc oxide, titanium dioxide would be fine. Again, this is, list is partial. The other thing to remember about sunscreens is that uh, depending on the age of the patient, you, you, you may or may not need to make sure that the sunscreen is tear-free. So in very young patients who touch their face all the time, infants, um, young children, having a, a tear-free sunscreen is, is extremely important even for their body. For older kids who do a lot of sports or sweat a lot while they're outside, again, that's another important consideration. People often ask, ask about spray sunscreens versus um, rub-on sunscreens. In general, for kids who have sensitive skin or atopic dermatitis, I think that the cream-based physical blockers are the most gentle. People who are um, especially worried about, uh, about ingredients and may have been patch-tested, positive for several things, Savannah cream is always a, a nice option for them to start off with. Okay, um, so inflammation. One of the prongs of atopic dermatitis is that it involves inflamed skin. Sometimes that takes a little explaining to families because uh, they would really like to get by without using a prescription medication for their small child or baby. But we do need to explain to them that um, if there's redness in the skin, there, that does mean that there's inflammation. And it should be treated so that it doesn't spiral into uh, to a worse disease. One of the ways you can think about it is that if they're red and inflamed, you need some type of topical anti-inflammatory to put out the fire. Pediatricians uh, have been taught that topical steroids 
are bad. I mean, that, that, that has been kind of passed down, and you'll see people come from pediatri pediatric offices that, you know, they were to use their topical steroids two days and off five or every other day or two weeks and then off a month. People are very scared to use topical steroids in kids, and hopefully, by the end of this talk, you will feel a little bit more comfortable. So I think there are several steroid myths. One is that they will stunt your growth. Um, used appropriately, that shouldn't happen. Uh, topical steroids cause hypopigmentation. Most of the time what's happening is that there is post-inflammatory hypopigmentation that occurs because of the original inflammation, not because of the steroid, and that's something that you need to, to discuss. And then again, this pulse use of steroid uh, when the dermatitis is not yet clear often is not helpful. So what I, would, what I kind of tell parents is that I want to treat until it's much better. Um, I don't want to treat for a certain number of days. So using a mid or high potency steroid for flares and then tapering to a lower strength. Most of the time, you know, parents are, are really you know, willing, as long as you write things down and, and explain it to them, to have a couple different strengths of steroids because they know that there's going to be bad days and good days. And I always try to tell them on the bad days you use this and on the good days you can go down. Uh, I definitely try to use ointments more, not, because, not only because I think the absorption is better, because they're less likely to sting. So one other um, common problem is when kids scratch and leave all those excoriated areas, if you put a lotion on it, it will sting, and some creams will also sting. You have to be careful about some ointments. So there are some ointments, such as mometazone, for example, but there are others that are formulated with propylene glycol and can also sting. So to, to a blanket statement that ointments don't sting is not quite right. You have to still think about if they're formulated with anything that could be, that could be uh, sensitive for the child. I usually do twice-daily application. I do think it matters where you are treating. So location, location, and location. You can use class one or two steroids. You can use pretty strong steroids in those kids who have like kinified, confluent plaques on their dorsal hands and feet. You, it may need that to get it clear. So uh, you know, in, in certain locations, high potency steroids are fine. And you can think about it as body surface area. How much are they going to get absorbed if they're using it on a very small body surface area? Oftentimes, mid-potency steroids for the body and, and low-potency steroids uh, for the face and in intertriginous areas. That being said, if they don't need a high potency steroid, obviously you try to get by with the, the lowest potency possible, but you can use it um, if you need it. Problem with studies in, in dermatology and studies in general in medicine is that people don't do many studies in children. Uh, we extrapolate from the adult data. And there are, but there are a few um, topical steroids that have been studied and are FDA approved for pediatric atopic dermatitis, including fluticasone in the cream formulation, desinide in both the foam and the gel, and flucinolone. But most of what we, and those are for the youngest um, children, but most of what we use is off-label. Don't forget the scalp. So the scalp in young children in, in early infancy can be a combination of seborrheic dermatitis and atopic dermatitis. That'll sort itself out. So, you know, after the first six to nine months of life, when the seborrheic dermatitis tends to go away and you can really see what's atopic, you, you, you still have to remember to address the scalp. Again, it's easy when families uh, are looking at a scalp that doesn't have much hair in a baby. But as they get older, if you look at a lot of five, six, seven-year-olds, they still have really itchy, scaly scalp as part of their atopic dermatitis. So Trying to, trying to remember that is helpful so we don't simply give them some ketoconazole thinking it's seborrheic dermatitis, but it never getting better. Oftentimes they do need an anti-inflammatory as well.
Picking a vehicle that's, that's easily applied to the scalp is obviously important. So oils, lotions, foams, all of those uh, can be easy to put into the scalp itself. Wet wrap therapy. How many of you like to use wet wrap therapy? So when we see a kid who has really bad atopic dermatitis and they show up in the ER at Riley and they get admitted, that's all we do in patient. I mean, we don't give them oral steroids. We don't give them, you know, any big drugs that Dr. Wolverton was talking about. We essentially do wet wraps. So I, I think this is a good thing to be comfortable with so that when you see that kid who was outside, they were on a camping trip, they, everything flared him and he comes in and you just need to really put out the fire, this is what I would do instead of giving them an oral corticosteroid. So for moderate to severe flares, what I have them do is, um, take a bath, soaking bath, at least five to 10 minutes, a little bit longer, pat dry. They put their moisturizer on, they put their topical steroid on, just like you would normally do. And then because a for a child to sit still and to wrap them with uh, wet gauze and then dry gauze, you may not get a child to sit still that long. So what I usually have them do is just take cotton pajamas, so those fitted pajamas that you can get with cuff at the bottom of the sleeves and a cuff at the bottom of the legs. Um, put it in some comfortable temperature water, wring it out so it's not wet. It's, not, it's wet, but it's not dripping. They put that on, and then they put a warm layer on top, so something like a sweatsuit, some blankets. Um, and that, if they can sleep in, will be great. If they can't, at least one or two hours while they're being distracted, once or twice a day during that flare. So oftentimes, this is something that I use for two or three days before they go to their reg regular regimen after a flare. Remember that the occlusion itself can increase the potency of the topical steroid. So I, I rarely would do this with anything greater than um, desonide or a, or a hydrocortisone, 2.5%. So what are, what are we worried about with, side of, uh, with the steroid side effects? We are worried about telangiectasias, atrophy of the skin, uh, acne, rosacea on the, on the face, increased hair growth. But all of those are reversible if, if you catch them early. So, you know, you, you guys are all doing dermatology, you're used to looking for atrophy, and seeing them frequently if they're on a mid to high potency steroid is important. The non-reversible one, which I'm sure everybody has seen at one point uh, in time, are stretch marks, and that's one you never want. So uh, again, trying to educate them that this is for erythema. Do not put steroid on normal skin. I know a lot of people are fans of giving patients a combination of steroid and moisturizer. And sometimes that's the only way you're going to get the patient to compl comply with using both every day. But I tend never to do that because I don't want to put any steroid, no matter how low potency, on normal skin. So all, all my patients have a steroid and have a moisturizer, and they're told why I'm doing it that way. That's inconvenient, but uh, that's, that's just my philosophy. But I do know that, um, that using a low potency steroid with a, with a uh, moisturizer combined can in, in, uh, increase adherence. So if you have to do that, stick with very low potency steroid or else you can get into trouble with stretch marks, especially on the, on the inner arms and medial thighs. So um, again, education about the steroid uh, phobia is important. So patients um, sometimes will, will use a topical steroid for the inflammatory phase of pityriasis alba. You'll see, uh, you'll see that those white spots on their, on their arms, and they will think it's from the steroids. So you just have to make sure that they understand that. 
If you're really worried about steroid absorption, you can work with your endocrine colleagues to try to do uh, some studies to look at and see if the HPA axis is being suppressed, but rarely do you need to really do that. So some of the, the pearls for topical steroid use, low strength is not useful for moderate to severe disease. So putting desinide on severe atopic dermatitis is just not enough to get ahead of it. So you, you, you may, it may be a short duration, but you do need to use a strong enough uh, topical. Uh, make sure parents understand why you're doing it and um, use patient handouts, write things down, because what we ask parents and families to do is very complicated and everybody has a busy schedule. So trying to be as clear as possible with their, uh, patient education is important. So what about systemic steroids uh, in atopic dermatitis? I think that in probably 11 years, I've used it maybe twice, and I see really, really bad atopic dermatitis. So I do not use systemic corticosteroids, and, and partially because maybe a lot of you have seen this, is that when someone is seen in the emergency room and they, they get steroids for their atopic dermatitis, two weeks later, it's worse than it ever was before. Uh, you could argue that you, you could cool somebody down if they were having a big flare with a, with a slow taper of steroid, something over four to six weeks. I think that would be reasonable if you have the backup plan in place, all the gentle skin care and, and the topical steroids ready to go. The problem with systemic steroids is that this is a chronic disease and it's a short-term answer. So I rarely do it. It definitely can affect bone density with repeat courses. We know that from the literature in patients who get steroids for other uh, reasons and it increases your risk for cataracts. So what about therapies that are not steroids? Because um, you know, that's, it's, an, it's an important question that a lot of families will have. Well, I do not want to use topical steroids on, on my baby or my child. What else can I do? So now they're not so new, but these um, topical calcineurin inhibitors or immune modulators, such as pimicolimus and uh, tacrolimus, are available. Um, they're, not, uh, they're not always covered by insurance plans, uh, so that, that, that may be one issue, but it's important to use them in, in limited areas or to argue for their use in limited areas, and we'll kind of talk about that. The big thing about these drugs is, is what, what about the safety warning? So there's a black box warning and when this came out, I remember I was uh, practicing in Washington, D.C., and the day that this came out, I must have had like 20 messages on my answering machine uh, from parents who had just heard that this had a black box warning. So what, what do I think about that warning, and what is, has it changed my practice? Uh, it really has not changed my practice, but it is important to understand where that warning came from. Uh, this, these drugs in their oral form are used in transplant patients, so they're very immunosuppressive drugs. The, the animal studies that this black box warning was based upon include these monkey studies where they used uh, 30 times the serum level that would be acceptable for humans, and those patients had an increased list of, uh, risk of lymphoma and skin malignancies. So I think uh, most people feel that that black box warning is not truly justified, but part of what brought it on is that this was a, these drugs were heavily marketed to pediatricians, not, uh, even more than they were to dermatologists, and the fear was that people were going to just say, well, we don't need steroids anymore. We're going to put this head to toe several times a day, and then maybe we would be getting a lot of systemic absorption. So I think follow-up studies have shown that the systemic absorption, when used appropriately, is very unlikely. 
they are measurable. You can measure systemic absorption. If you had a patient who you were suspecting was overusing the medication and there was a side effect that you, you, you wanted to um, see if it could possibly be related, you can do blood levels of tacrolimus as well as pomicrolimus. So what are the advantages? It's steroid free. So in places that I still worry about steroids, the eyes, the face, thin skin areas like medial thighs or, or groin, I think they're great. And that's, that is actually where I use them the most. You don't have to worry about uh, the atrophy. And it's good for the parents that are very steroid phobic. The disadvantage is, is that there is some transient burning or stinging. It can be uh, only at the initial couple applications, or it can be continuous, especially if you have uh, patients who have a lot of excoriations or eroded skin. There are several things you can do for, the, for, for that side effect. One is you can mix it with a little over-the-counter 1% hydrocortisone. That'll help it be tolerated for at least the first week, and then you can take away the hydrocortisone and hope the stinging has, has subsided. You can put moisturizers or a barrier cream 10 minutes before application of either pimicrolimus or tacrolimus, and that will help with the burning sensation. But it's something that, about, that occurs in about 10 to 15% of patients, so again, good for the families to know. These drugs are not as strong as our potent topical steroids, so they're, not, they're less effective for patients who have very severe disease. They're, they're better for mild to moderate atopic dermatitis and as a steroid-sparing agent uh, during the course of their atopic derm. I think everyone knows that they're very expensive, and as even our insured, our insured parent patients are having a harder time because of the higher deductibles on their plans, they're, en they're ending up seeing this cost sooner. So it's just something to keep in mind that these are quite a bit more expensive than our atopical steroids. So I usually use steroids for flares and then switch to one of these uh, topical immunomodulators in areas that steroids are not um, safe for long-term use, especially the face and groin. Sometimes we'll use it for mild facial dermatitis. Um, and then after, uh, and, then, and then there are, there's some literature now that, that uh, supports the use of these medications in patients who have very severe recalcitrant atopic dermatitis as steroid sparing therapy when their skin looks good. So you treat them with their topical steroid and on days when they look good, they, they actually apply this to skin that is normal to try to um, re reduce the chance of a flare. And again, it, that's, um, uh, there are several papers to support that, and I do that occasionally in, in our really tough kids who flare so quickly. So what about itch? So another part of the treatment of atopic dermatitis is managing the itch. If you don't manage the itch, you're not really going to, again, get top of, uh, on top of it. And there, uh, are, are many people that believe that antihistamines don't really work for atopic dermatitis. And I think that, uh, that there's even literature that shows that the non-sedating antihistamines are not effective in the itch with atopic dermatitis. But certainly for the sedating antihistamines, there's lots of evidence that it is helpful. And part of, this, part of the reason that they help is that they, do, they, they have a sedating effect and many patients itch during their sleep. So, there are, again, several studies looking at sleep disorders in patients with atopic dermatitis, that, that it, the incidence of sleep disorders are as high as 60 to 80% in these kids. They either have trouble falling asleep because they're scratching or they wake up itching at night. And that's a vicious cycle in terms of families that you know you've all seen, that the baby's not sleeping or the child's not sleeping, so the parents aren't sleeping, and then it, it, it's a significant impact on the quality of life of the whole household. 
So the, the studies have shown there's been discipline problems um, and uh, a, even a correlation with the prevalence of ADHD in patients who have uh, atopic dermatitis and sleep, coexisting sleep disorders. So antihistamines can help to stop the itch scratch cycle. Uh, it's nice to be able to give a significant dose of a sedating antihistamine before bedtime so they're not sedated during school. So most of the time I'll, I'll give their largest or, or maybe even single dose of antihistamine at night, an hour before bed. Uh, the, the dose for children is usually one to two milligrams per kilogram per day, uh, either as a single nightly dose or divided. You can use diphenhydramine over the counter uh, Benadryl or hydroxazine. Those are probably the most, two most common. And then again, uh, we try to titrate it so that kids can wake up and, and do what they need to do. Uh, even toddlers need to develop during the day and you don't want them sedated because of their antihistamine. Low dose antihistamine can, can be used during the daytime for school aged children uh, at a half mg per kg per day, but even that may be high for some kids, so you'll just have to titrate that depending on their, on their uh, sedation. So bacterial infection and atopic dermatitis, we'll switch gears a little bit. Uh, Staph aureus is the most common bacteria, but uh, strep is also very common in patients who have atopic dermatitis. Uh, they can get crusting, pustules, uh, or just eroded plaques that won't heal are all suggestive of, of super-infected atopic dermatitis. I usually treat for 7 to 14 days. Uh, we, try to, we try to avoid prolonged use of antibiotics because of the issue of resistance. So, Several years ago, some people would advocate putting patients on an antibiotic for a month at a time who had infected atopic dermatitis. We rarely do that anymore. And you, if someone just has a few eroded areas, but it's very mild, even just treating aggressively with your skin regimen and, atopic, and, and uh, topical steroids may be enough without the use of antibiotics. The other thing that um, can, can help, which I'll give you, we'll talk about in detail in a second, are bleach baths. So I find that sometimes if I have a patient who looks like they're starting to get infected, trying to avoid the use of repeated antibiotics in these kids so that they don't get resistant bacteria, I'll first initiate bleach baths and see if that helps clear them. I mean, if they're not better in a week or two, then we'll go on to antibiotics. The choice of antibiotics, uh, cephalexin is a popular choice. It's effective, it tastes good, it's pink. There's lots of things that kids like about it. Uh, for resistant bacteria, you can use clindamycin. I, didn't, I don't have it on the slide, but you can use septra or um, trimethoprim, uh, sulfamethoxazole as well. Although the, the uh, other potential side effects with that drug uh, scare off a lot of dermatologists away. Erythromycin and azithromycin are actually not very effective because of increasing resistance to these medications. So, if those, for allergy reasons, are uh, going to be some of your first choices, it may be nice to, to make sure you culture and get sensitivities to make sure that the, the bug itself is sensitive. I often get patients who say, antibiotics don't help my skin, but what did, what did your doctor give you? They gave them amoxicillin. Amoxicillin is not a great drug for staph, so um, you know, being treated for an ear infection or strep throat may not necessarily help their eczema. This is a pretty typical patient who has that impetigenized eczema that can be confluent on the face and again, uh, very resistant to therapy. This patient, a, a typical history would be, I've been on st topical steroids, I've been on antibiotics, nothing helped. And I think that the, the key is doing everything at once. They need to be on the appropriate strength, topical anti-inflammatory at the same time as they're on 
the, uh, the antibiotic and the same time they're on the antihistamine. Any one of those kind of falling off will, will make this just creep right back. So bleach baths, that's another thing that takes a few minutes to talk about in, in the clinic, but I think is very helpful. Uh, a lot of people have an immediate adverse reaction when you talk about putting bleach on their child's skin or in the, in the bath. Uh, but it has, is, it has been found to be very helpful in kids with atopic dermatitis. So our typical recommendation is in a child who sits in a bathtub, when the, when the uh, water is up to waist level, they put one-fourth to one-eighth cup of Clorox bleach. And there are fancy Clorox bleaches. You don't want any of those. You don't want the scented one. You just want the regular uh, Clorox bleach. You swirl it around and the child gets in. After they soak, uh, they make sure that the, you have to make sure that the chlorine is rinsed off, and then you go about the normal regimen of, of moisturizer, and, uh, moisturizer and topical anti-inflammatory. It really has been shown in some of these kids who get repeatedly infected to, to really help minimize antibiotic use. If they go swimming or have a swim lesson, that counts as their bleach bath for the day, so they kind of like that. There are some new products on the market that are um, sodium hypochlorite gels or preparations where you don't actually have to get a child in a bath. Uh, Clorox is by far the most economical uh, way to get, get, get sodium hypochlorite on the skin. But in some patients, they have had uh, adverse, they've had bad experiences with baths. And you cannot get a kid in a bath who doesn't want to get in a bath. So sometimes as a bridge to restarting the bathing process, to restarting the, the bleach baths, uh, we'll, I'll use these. Uh, Oristat, these are just a few of the, the, the brands. But essentially, they're a gel that's anti, that, doesn't, that doesn't sting on most kids and, and can be applied once to twice a day and act as a disinfectant. I put this one in here kind of at the last minute because I was talking about bacterial infection, and I realized um, I, I would not be mentioning something else that's really important to pick up on. And, and you can tell by this picture that it looks different than the others. These are very discreet, punched-out lesions. And this is a patient who has eczema herpeticum. So uh, we can't forget that HSV can, can uh, be in, in eczematous lesions. And especially around the eye or very diffuse uh, involvement, patients need IV antibiotics. In a patient who has a small focus of eczema herpeticum on one arm, they can be treated orally with acyclovir, but if it is anywhere near the eye or if it's very diffuse, they need to be admitted uh, for IV uh, acyclovir. Food allergy. Uh, I think that this is very common. Patients come in and they really think the atopic dermatitis is due to, to food. And like I said before, this can often be seen in younger patients, but very unlikely to be seen as you get in, into older children. 30 to 35% of children with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis have food allergy. But in most cases, the food does actually, actually does not flare the atopic dermatitis. So making sure that you're restricting food for the right reason. If they're allergic to it, they have GI symptoms, they have uh, bloody diarrhea. There, there, there are other reasons to restrict food. But what we, we don't want to do is have a severe um, nutritional deficiency because of diet restriction based on uh, the, the feeling that it's going to help their atopic dermatitis. So uh, testing them for allergy, you can do that in a couple different ways. Um, you can have immunocap testing. So that's convenient because it's a blood test. Um, the problem is that many patients who have atopic dermatitis have high IgE levels, so they'll have some false positives. So you have to, to make sure that you interpret those cautiously. A negative immunocap is helpful. 
because you can at least liberalize their diet if they, if they don't have um, an high IgE levels to, to dairy, then likely they're not, this is not affecting their atopic dermatitis. So they can be helpful, but the gold standard is still um, skin prick tests. And those are done by the allergist. Uh, the, the problem with that is always that they have to be on an, off of antihistamine for a week, and that's difficult for some families, but very valuable in, in some children uh, to make sure that we're not either overly restricting or missing an important allergy such as peanut. Just a few uh, last slides on uh, some variants uh, that come into the office. So very common again, pityoriasis alba, especially in darker skin patients, uh, there may be a fear of that this is vitiligo and that they're gonna become completely depigmented. Uh, it's nice to, to reassure them that this is, can be considered a mild form of atopic dermatitis, that it won't tan and using sunscreen will be important for making this look uh, less prominent. And the other thing to, to kind of educate them is that this typically doesn't itch. So they have a hard time believing that it's part of the atopic spectrum. Uh, but it's important to, to tell them that this is a variant that uh, doesn't usually itch and that can respond to, to fairly mild anti, topical anti-inflammatories. Another uh, common disorder, keratosis pilaris, which many of us have seen, has come in as atopic dermatitis. It's not, it's not uh, getting better with this topical steroids, and they're, they're frustrated. I like to think of this as a variant of normal skin. I call it a sensitive skin type. It usually helps if you ask mom or dad and who are in the room if they have it too, because they often do, and then they, they feel not as bad about their child having it. It's often a cosmetic issue, and for the erythema, some low potency topical steroid can be helpful, but keratolytics uh, are, are, are helpful for the, in, in conjunction with keratolytics, you can also get rid of some of the hyperkeratotic component. I always give patients a choice of whether they want to treat it because it being a variant of um, a variant skin type, if they stop, it comes right back. So I always tell them, if you don't care about this, you may not want to add something twice a day to your regimen. So most of the time I end up using just bland emollients and reassurance. The keratolytics you can use vary from things that have salicylic acid, alpha hydroxy acid, or lactic acid in them. You have to be careful about young kids who present with diffuse keratosis pilaris. You don't want to give them a lot of lactic acid or salicylic acid because of the absorption and, and, and possible toxicity of those medications. I rarely use any kind of prescription um, lactic acid or salicylic acid until kids are at least eight or 10 years old. They can use the over-the-counter lactic acid pre preparations or some of the uh, barrier repair creams can be helpful for keratosis pilaris. So some of the ones we talked about that had filaggrin byproducts or ceramides, those can also be helpful. Ichthyosis vulgaris, another thing that comes in that gets treated is, and, and patients get frustrated because their, their eczema is not getting better, but really there's no inflammation there. It's just, it's just dry skin or ichthyosis vulgaris. And we know that this is a, uh, the most common cause is a mutation in the filaggrin gene. So again, just education and moisturization uh, and, and sometimes keratolytic therapy in older children. So stressing that uh, there, are, there is a need to educate patients well, use handouts, use websites. The National Eczema Association has a great website for, for uh, parents. There are others uh, that are targeted more towards kids. Undermyskin.com has uh, information that even small children can relate to. Those should be in your handout. 
And remembering that this is a disease for the entire family. Uh, anytime patients or small children are in pain, they're itching, they're up, it affects the whole family. And there have been studies that show that the quality of life in, in families whose children have severe atopic dermatitis is as affected as those who have type 1 diabetes. So I, don't, I never want to minimize the, the effect that this has on families. And the last slide I have is, out of, uh, is borrowed from Sarah Chamlin, who does quality of life work in atopic dermatitis out of Northwestern. And she has collected a series of these drawings uh, from children who have atopic dermatitis trying to, uh, trying to explain what they think of their skin disease. And so I think it's just kind of telling, you know, this one on the right talking about I want a new body. We tend to think eczema is a common, uh, treated, controllable disease, but for many people it's, it's uh, very life-altering. So on that I will, I thank you for your attention and I will take any questions that you have. I heard what you said about uh, the lack of evidence for foods causing atopic dermatitis. I'm buying that. But you know who doesn't buy it is the allergy community. The allergists still tell people that all the time. Uh, I wonder why that is and why we have two, is it just when you're a hammer the whole world looks like a nail or what? Why is it that the allergists keep saying that and they have no evidence to back that up? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I, you know, there is a difference in the allergists you send them to. There are some that are still, you know, you send them somebody, they have 50 prick tests on their back, which I, I really don't think there's a lot of evidence for. One thing, you know, you can kind of come back to the allergist with is there were some new guidelines out last year, I believe, uh, from the allergy community talking about food allergy and atopic dermatitis. It was a multidisciplinary, multi-site national consensus statement on food allergy. And that could be at least something you can go back to. And they literally suggest, you know, peanuts, egg, soy, wheat, and dairy. Uh, and, you know, so for testing for those is reasonable, but the whole... 20, 50 on the back is really not, and I, and I, you know, I wish I had an answer of why they, why they uh, say that, but I don't. I think that, um, you know, the, the allergists I tend to send people to adhere to the, I'm going to look at the top five, and I try to educate people who have that big list that the green beans are probably not what is driving their eczema. Or the pizza. Or the pizza, yeah. I recently had a pediatric patient who was two years old, um, referred to me from the ER, in follow-up, they thought that it was a reaction to protopic, but when the patient presented, it was eczema herpeticum. Um, and so I did have one of the MDs take a look at the patient with me, and it was lateral forehead sort of all the way down to the side of the face. And we didn't um, have the patient hospitalized for um, IV acyclovir. We, we did oral and followed up in five days, and they were much better. But when I heard you say that, I was wondering, should I follow up with that patient and have them um, see an eye doctor? So, um, you know, I think, did they see an eye doctor in the ER? No. Yeah. I, I guess I would have had them see an eye, eye doctor just to know if there was any keratitis that had to be treated longer than we would treat with oral um, acyclovir. So it's not to say that, I, that, you know, it's wrong to treat someone with, with oral acyclovir for eczema herpeticum. But because, and you guys may have seen this, that it can go from a little to a lot in, in 12 hours with eczema herpeticum. It can just spread all through their eczema. And so uh, to at least watch them and give them a day or two of IVA cyclovir would be reasonable. Uh, do they need to have follow-up? If it was involving the periocular area, I would have them have just an eye exam to make sure. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Um, what kind of education do you give to parents who are afraid to use wet wraps out of fear of their child getting sick? Because I've actually had quite a few 
parents fear that, even though they're pretty effective. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hear that as well. Um, I, I stress that they can have a warm layer on top, that they shouldn't be shivering. So sweatsuit is what I often tell them to have. Uh, and in those patients, I, I sometimes can't just, I, I will not convince them to let them sleep like that. But I will convince them to let them watch a movie for an hour or two with that on, with the warm layer blankets on. Um, other things you can do is, is some kids who just have a lot of acral involvement will do the same thing with tube socks. So somehow the family feels better that it's not on the chest. So we'll just do adult tube socks up to the you know, mid-arm and, and the mid-leg, and, and that'll help. And that kind of gets by the whole kid shivering. Well, thank you.